Welcome to the ASHP Advantage Podcast, engaging the experts on ASHP Official, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners about the latest issues in pharmacy and healthcare. All right. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us in this episode where we sit down with content matter experts and discuss current issues and practical strategies to improve patient care. My name is Dr. Brian Hemstreet, and today I'm joined by Dr. Aaron Hamai-Tom. Today's episode is part of the ASHP Advantage podcast series, Engaging Experts, featuring conversations with top-level practitioners. This episode is supported by an independent medical education grant from Takeda Pharmaceuticals, USA Incorporated. This podcast is informational purposes only and not approved for continuing education credit. Additional activities on this topic are available at www.ashpadvantage.com slash EOE. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started talking about today's topic, eosinophilic esophagitis. So thanks again for joining us, Dr. Hamai Tom. There's lots of great information out there now about treatments for eosinophilic esophagitis. And one of those treatments that we've discussed recently is budesonide. In late December, Takeda Pharmaceuticals received a complete response letter from the FDA requesting an additional study, and the budesonide oral solution was not approved. How do you think providers are reacting to this, and what are the next steps? So, yes, this is really recent. And in case people haven't heard about this yet, yeah, Takeda received a CRL for their budesonide oral solution. And a CRL or a complete response letter occurs when the FDA reviews the data from a new drug application, but it can't approve it in its present form. So in this case, it sounds like the FDA wanted an additional clinical study to answer some questions. You know, I'm not sure exactly what Takeda plans to do with it just yet, but, you know, I think the fact that we were expecting a response April 2021, at least it's something to have some sort of update from the FDA on what's going on with this medication. Overall, I think many providers are shocked, myself included. You know, while we don't want to approve any medications for EOE that aren't safe or effective for patients, I think that there is this pressure to get something on the market because at this point, we we really have nothing. And it's kind of a struggle to get patients access to medications to treat EOE. And I also think you know, it's kind of awkward to provide the patient education that we have to for the off-label medications, mixing the budesonide respules with 10 packets of an artificial sweetener or telling people to swallow their inhaler kind of feels like mad science sometimes. And I'm always thinking in the back of my head, like, do these patients think I'm crazy because I'm giving them these instructions? You know, I can't really think of any other disease states where we really have to do something like this. Anyways, you know, budesonide, as we know, it has a high first pass metabolism and very limited systemic absorption. So overall, the medication itself is, you know, pretty safe and pretty well tolerated compared to taking something like prednisone, we already compounded for EOE. So I just think there is a lot of shock going around with this announcement. In terms of next steps, I think we are probably going to be waiting a while for additional medications to be submitted to the FDA. In the meantime, we're going to have to continue to use what we have available, and we're going to have to continue to advocate for our patients to their insurance companies to get what we need for them. 
Unfortunately, patients have such limited options since this disease was recognized over the past couple decades. I do think it's a plus that, you know, at least we have updated guidelines that came out recently. So overall, EOE is getting more attention these days. Great. And thanks for the update on that. So as a reminder, and you mentioned this, I think, you know, the guidelines do advocate for using topical corticosteroids as kind of a main treatment for EOE. And the options nowadays are really the compounded dudesonide product and or the fluticasone oral inhaled product as well. So are those going to continue to be the two options then going forward that most pharmacists are going to see for prescriptions for patients in the interim? Yes, definitely. That's probably what we're going to see. Obviously, in the guidelines, there are also dietary recommendations and the recommendations for PPI use. But as we know, you know, there are challenges to both. So in terms of the topical steroids that we use, it is going to be kind of the budesonide and fluticasone. Great. So given those topical corticosteroids are a mainstay of treatment and recommended in the guidelines, can you talk a little bit about what are other therapies in the pipeline that may be promising for patients and providers that may be anxiously awaiting a formally approved product through the FDA? So I would say almost everything in the pipeline right now is going to be a biologic. And I think that's both good and bad. So first of all, you know, if we manage to get any of these agents, any of these biologic agents approved, it's going to be a great option, especially for somebody who's failed, you know, diet PPIs and or topical steroids. However, you know, it's going to be tricky to kind of navigate because it can open a can of worms with respect to peer coverage. You know, I think formularies would require kind of a trial and failure of, you know, diet or medications in some sort of step therapy algorithm. We already see these in, you know, inflammatory bowel disease, rheumatoid arthritis, and other disease states which require biologics. You know, with that said, I think the agent that's furthest along, and we kind of did chat about this before, is probably dupilumab. This medication is already FDA approved for other indications like atopic dermatitis and asthma. And actually, the medication is being studied for some other indications as well as EOE. Dupilumab has completed two phase three trials for EOE. And just like the budesonide oral solution, it's being looked at for long-term use. I think that's more of an emphasis these days in terms of you know emerging therapies for EOE. What I'm hearing is we probably can expect a filing for dupilumab sometime this year, you know, and it's probably going to be kind of similar to what we see for its other indications. Um, You know, it's a self-injectable medication and it's usually dosed about every two weeks. I think another agent, you know, that's getting some attention is benrelizumab. That's another biologic. It's already approved for asthma, self-injected, and that's being studied for EOE as well as some other indications. We do know it's in phase three trials for EOE, and it's also being looked at in terms of long-term use. So those two, you know, again, these biologics are very hard to study and whatnot. So we're looking at some of the agents already available as kind of like a additional diagnosis to add to its labeling. There are a couple novel agents being studied. I think one of them is sendikimab, which is an IL-13 inhibitor. That seems to be in phase three trials for EOE. Of note, that medication is also being studied for atopic dermatitis. You're going to see a lot of the same themes going around 
And lirantelumab is a cyclic 8 inhibitor, so it works on mast cells and eosinophils. The data that was released late last year didn't look so great for GI conditions like EOE. It might have more promise in atopic dermatitis and asthma, but you know we'll see if it goes any further. Lastly, outside of kind of like the biologic realm, there's actually another topical steroid formulation in the works. So, you know, we talked about how budesonide and futicazone are kind of like the mainstay for EOE treatment right now. So it sounds like there's a fluticasone tablet that's an oral disintegrating tablet. Sounds a lot like the budesonide ODT tablet that Europe already has available. So, you know, it's kind of that same basis where we're really trying to get drug delivery to the site affected, which is the esophagus. Some of the phase two data was presented at DDW last year, and it, it seems to be in phase three trials right now. So there are agents in the pipeline, but I just don't think we're necessarily going to have anything readily available, especially this year. Great. Thank you for that great overview. So it sounds like you know limited options at this point from an FDA approved standpoint, but lots of activity going on in the research realm, and hopefully we'll have something soon along those lines. You know, given pharmacists are in a position where they may be seeing these patients, particularly those that have been on PPIs for long-term, or maybe using some of these alternate formulations of topical steroids, and maybe even some dietary interventions, are there things that we can look for or recommend to our colleagues for those patients who may have refractory disease when they try these initial interventions? Oh, that's a tough one to answer. I mean, you know, we don't have many options and there's just so many factors that go into that, you know, and of course the biggest barrier is usually cost or coverage of medications. Now, after we've tried the three Ds and maybe even a combination of the three Ds, if it doesn't work, we kind of have to assess the situation. Is this a patient who's having like ongoing symptoms? Is this a patient having frequent dilations? If there's that much inflammation, sometimes we don't have an option other than systemic steroids. Obviously, this comes with a lot of risks and concerns, but I mean, I try to keep in mind that we do this for other inflammatory conditions. For example, for patients with rheumatoid arthritis, sometimes they're on a small daily dose of prednisone. Is this ideal? No, but we kind of have to balance the needs of the patient. And other inflammatory diseases, we may also put people on steroid-sparing agents. So something like azathioprine or mercaptopurine, you know, as kind of talked about, sometimes we, we can definitely leverage if patients have concomitant diagnoses and get them the biologics, but that's often very challenging. And I think cost, you know, we always have to keep that in mind. Assuming, you know, all these barriers and refractory disease, I think another option that we sometimes overlook and don't really think about too much are clinical trials. So refractory disease is kind of a tough one, but we, at least in my institution, we try to set people up with clinical trials should they have no other options. So, yeah. Right. Sounds like a very challenging situation when patients exhaust these initial treatment options. But hopefully, like you said, maybe there's opportunities to get them into a clinical trial. Corticosteroids, again, systemic-wise are always an option, but not ideal, particularly long-term. So again, lots of really good opportunities, I think, from a pharmacist standpoint to be involved in kind of helping out with the drug management and particularly managing potential adverse effects long-term as well. Well, this has been a great discussion. That's all the time we have for today. And I want to thank Dr. Hamai Tom for joining us and providing her expertise. 
Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. Don't forget to check out the website, www.ashpadvantage.com forward slash EOE for our webinars, additional podcasts, and online commentaries. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation and be sure to subscribe to ASHP podcasts through your favorite podcast provider. Thanks for joining us for the ASHP Advantage podcast, Engaging the Experts. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time for more expert perspectives on ASHP Official.